CBS presents this program in color. Last week, as you recall, we left Will and the robot watching Dr. Smith's secret experiments in winemaking, unaware that within moments, they and our entire space family would be hopelessly imprisoned by mysterious unseen aliens. Well? It's still all clear outside, Dr. Smith. Good. There. Steady, steady. Keep up a steady flow of current. If my efforts are not satisfactory, then I suggest you do the job yourself. Mind your manners and you'll keep your friends, you mental midget. Dad said you were never to use the robot as a power supply, Dr. Smith. I'm sure he wouldn't mind if he knew this alcohol was for medicinal purposes. Well, if it's all right, why don't you tell Dad and the others what you're doing? Yes, why do you sneak out in the dead of night to work at your liquor still? Liquor still, indeed. How dare you? And as for keeping this project a secret, I just thought it would be so nice to surprise everyone. Dr. Smith, the little old winemaker. Spare me your asinine asides, you pathetic pomposity. Warning, alien presence. Warning, alien presence. Warning, alien presence indeed. It appears to me that you have alien presence on the mind lately. However, William, would you be good enough to go outside and have a look? Dr. Smith, we know something's out there. The robot's never wrong. Sometimes he is. I know myself, you see, but uh, this is a critical time in winemaking, you do understand. Ah! Do something, you cowardly clump! Protect us! My power supply has been drained. It is extremely low. He hasn't got enough energy for electrical charge! Ah! Help! 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 Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, to Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 35th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled The Prisoners of Space. But before we begin, sir, as judge, jury, and executioner of this proceeding, I must administer the oath. Please place your right hand on this King Zachary version of the Cosmic Bible. Do you hereby swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth about this episode, so help you, Erwin? No, but I do. Cross my fingers and hope to lie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, if you don't, uh, you'll be condemned to watch more Lost in Space. Oh, dear. (laughs) I'm freezing in fear. I'll be condemned of space. (laughs) Uh, This will be fun. Well, a few production notes before we begin with a story. Barney Slater is back for his second script of season two. The 43-year-old writer last entertained us with his 
bipolar episode, Forbidden World. For this story, Slater would employ a TV gimmick known as The Clip Show, which involves using scenes from previous episodes to construct an entirely new narrative. You know, I, I think we can safely assume that in theory, Irwin loves this kind of gimmick. Only he thinks of it more of like a clip joint, you see, because it allows him to rip off the networks by getting paid for all new material while recycling old stuff instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you almost want to believe Irwin invented this gimmick, don't you? <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Well, the truth is many critics deplore this technique, calling it lazy, or they point out that it cheats viewers out of new material, which could be a valid claim in a series known for its heavy use of recycled special effects shots, props, and even plot points. But in this case, The Prisoners of Space effectively used minimal footage from the first two episodes of season one, The Reluctant Stowaway and The Derelict, both of which were only aired once on CBS in 1965. And remember, once Lost in Space went into syndication, stations avoided airing the season one black and white episodes altogether, so viewers were less likely to be overly familiar with these scenes. What's more, those reused shots weren't just used as time filler. Instead, they played a major role as audiovisual evidence of the wraparound story of an intergalactic trial of humanity. And for all those Star Trek snobs out there who want to throw shade on Irwin Allen for yet another egregious case of recycling, just to save a few shekels, I'll remind you, just one month after The Prisoners of Space aired, none other than the great bird of the galaxy himself, Gene Roddenberry would use the same gimmick by recycling nearly all the footage from the unaired original Star Trek pilot, The Cage, in Spock's court-martial for the series' only two-parter, The Menagerie. Now, I do like The Menagerie. I think it's a classic. But if you ever read about it, Roddenberry is always praised for being so innovative in using that pilot footage. And yet Irwin never seems to get similar kudos for the way he effectively used footage from the unaired No Place to Hide pilot in several early Season 1 episodes, not to mention in this episode from Season 2. I also think, Kurt, it's an interesting coincidence that both series used the courtroom formula with recycled scenes for the episodes that aired so closely together. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. You know, but to be fair to Roddenberry, reusing never-before-seen footage like he did in The Cage isn't the same thing as recycling footage that viewers have already seen, like we're doing in this episode. Oh, yeah. But to be fair to Irwin, he pioneered that concept in his very first Lost in Space episode, No Place to Hide, as you just pointed out. But although it wasn't obvious to viewers... You can bet Roddenberry at least heard about it and thought, hey, two can play at that game. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's uh, clearly, you know, there's just no way that Roddenberry wasn't aware of that. And I bet the very moment he saw it, he thought, I'm going to put that on my bucket list. It's true. It does seem way too coincidental. That's for sure. Yeah. And, you know, can you blame him? I mean, these guys spent. What isn't a, a, the equivalent of today, millions of dollars on those pilot episodes. And right. all they got from it was a thumbs up from the network. Nobody had ever seen it. So for Irwin to be able to recycle it, that was a bit of a challenge. I mean, he had this whole new character that was missing in the first. How is he going to integrate those two things? Well, he came up with a very good way of doing it. The way that Star Trek did it, I thought was a lot more strained. It works, 
but it was a lot more strained. You know, I mean, they were really kind of jamming it, uh, what you call shoehorning it into yeah. that series. Well, they were. They were. And they got two episodes out of it. And they used practically all of the footage from the cage in those two episodes. So it's it's yeah. it's interesting. On but, a personal note, I can tell you that they made a lot of money off of that episode, probably a lot more than they did with the networks running it. By taking that first episode and going around to conventions and showing that as the uh, big highlight of the conventions, because I went to one of those conventions, and the big, <laughs> big moment was, and now for the premiere of the never-before-seen episode of Star Trek, you know, the crowd's going wild, mm. and it was like, wait a minute, but we have seen this, we saw it in the cage, <laughs> uh, but it's different, you see, different. So. Uh, that's great. Oh, you did one of those convention things. Oh, you got your geek credentials all filled out there. That's cool. I missed out on that. Hey, well, that's the only reason I can go to a, a Lost in Space convention or a Star Trek convention and not have to wear a bulletproof vest like you do, because I've got street cred on both sides. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Well, 59-year-old Nathan Juren calls action for the third time this season, his sixth for the series. Since one of the intents of doing a clip show is saving time, which as we all know, saves Irwin money, Juren was only allocated five days to shoot this one, from the 5th through the 11th of August, 1966. Proving his efficiency, somehow Nathan and cinematographer Frank Carson pulled it off beautifully, and without scrimping on some dramatic lighting effects, lots of atmospheric fog, as well as some elaborate camera angles. Results like that ensured that Juren would stay on Irwin Allen's payroll for years to come. Yeah, for years to come until his first mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Hitting on uh, Sheila? Is that was he the one that was hitting on Sheila? I can't remember that. I'm sorry. I shouldn't even mention that. (laughs) Until he shoots another glance towards the future Miss Irwin. Oh, boy. That's funny. This episode aired on Wednesday night, October 19th, 1966, and it didn't get a summer repeat, which I think is too bad. Because, spoiler alert, I think it's one of the better episodes of season two we've seen so far. Well, all our regular characters are featured on this one, and although uncredited, character actor Gregory Morton provides the voice of Judge Iko. If his commanding tone sounds familiar, that's because he'd last been heard as the voice of Canto of Quasti for the outstanding season one finale, Follow the Leader. With 75 TV and film credits from the 50s through the 70s, Morton only appeared on screen once for Irwin in the Time Tunnel episode, End of the World. You gotta love the titles of some of these (laughs) Irwin Allen shows. They're funny. I'm gonna want to watch that one just to see what he looks like. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Also, Dawson Palmer performs as several alien creatures, including the eyestock monster that appears in the teaser and was last seen in season one's The Magic Mirror. And for the second week in a row... Palmer would receive a screen credit for this episode, listed here simply as The Monster. Hmm. I don't know. He must be still asking for a raise, Kurt. Oh, yeah. Although I can hear Irwin now. Me pay you more. You should pay me. I just made you famous putting your name in lights. You owe me big time for this fella. Yeah. Wow. But he did get that credit for The Monster in an earlier episode that I pointed out. So it's not the first time. No, this is the second week in a row. He's on a trend. I don't know if that's going to last, though. We'll have to watch for that. Well, one monster I'm certain Palmer didn't play was the Wizard of Oz flying monkey alien from the Tribunal. Although we only see that monster from behind, 
It features the mask worn by David Hedison in the movie The Fly, which we also saw earlier mm-hmm. as the cave creature in season one's The Challenge. Underneath the mask this time is Bill Mooney's lighting double and stunt artist Sandy Gimpel. She'll get to wear that costume again <laughs> later mm-hmm. in the season two finale, The Galaxy Gift. Oh, man, they swapped so many monster heads around in this show. It was like a Mago action figure factory. <laughs> and then once they got completely overexposed on a mask and lost in space, they would pass it off to a sister show like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea or Time Tunnel. They even had a dragon head migrate over from an episode of Batman. Remember that one with Vincent Price's egg head? Man, talk about excessive. Uh, yeah, excessive. That's true. Yeah, the dragon head's like the bottom of the barrel, though, I have to say. When I saw that one, I was like, Yeah, oh, I think God. it even had like a little bow in the top or something. At one point, they, they added a bow to the top, a pink bow, <laughs> just to make sure you didn't get scared. It's a refugee from a Mardi Gras parade. I don't know where they came up with that one. That's funny. Well, this episode didn't rate an original score, but it made excellent use of tracked music from season one by John Williams and Herman Stein, as well as a healthy dose of Bernard Herman from The Day the Earth Stood Still. And that's recycling you'll never hear me complain about. Oh, yeah, it was great to hear that music again. It is. Well, with that, let's get on with the story. The Act One teaser starts out with Will and the robot watching Dr. Smith's secret nighttime experiments in winemaking. As the narrator warns us, though, within moments, they and our entire space family will be hopelessly imprisoned by mysterious, unseen aliens. Well, suddenly, the robot warns of an alien presence nearby. The miffed moonshiner scoffs at first, but then quickly cowers behind Will. But just then, our old friend, the hairy beast, appears, carrying a weird, chest-sized electronic device covered in dials and flashing lights. Uh Uh-oh. Smith screams for the cowardly clump to protect them. Oh dear! Help! (laughs) Unfortunately, B9's batteries have been drained, powering Dr. Smith's liquor still. And now he hasn't got enough energy left for an electrical charge. Oh dear! Discretion being the better part of valor, our three amigos lay out of there and head for the Jupiter 2, just as old Big Eye crashes through a wall of Smith's wine barrels. I wonder where they got all those wine barrels. That's hey, you can never have too many of those. Seconds later, we cut to the sandy path through a forest of purple boulders on the way back to the ship. Dr. Smith interrupts the retreat to ask rear guard robot if that thing is still following them. And right on cue, we can hear the monster's grisly growls getting closer, which gives B-9 a chance for a snarky retort. Your question is answered. Then what are we waiting for? Come along, Will? As our terrific trio beat feet out of the frame, the lumbering lummox suddenly emerges from around the edge of a large rock. But that mysterious electronic case he's carrying must weigh a ton, because at the snail pace the oafish ogre is pursuing them, even Dr. Smith's traipsing trot is leaving him in the dust. You know, Kurt, Dr. Smith certainly seemed spooked by the sight of that old big eye. And at first I thought maybe that's because he remembered him from that weird magic mirror dimension. 
It's certainly one of the more distinctive bear suit type alien monsters we've seen to date on the show. But if he did recognize the creature, he never mentions it. Did that strike you as odd? Well, actually, I think you got it backwards, like in a mirror. It's the <laughs> monster that remembers Smith. The way he comes barreling in, I mean, literally, he's had it up to his eyeball with earthlings. Now, someone else described that costume as a cookie monster with an eye on a stalk. I, I still liked it, though. It, it may not be a horrifying creature, but it's certainly one of the more distinctive ones. Oh, yeah. I love the big eyelashes on that eye, too. That's another, <laughs> another fun thing. Now, did that monster scare your girls? Did you let her watch the Magic Mirror? Uh, I don't remember their response at that point, and it didn't particularly scare them this time. I think they kind of spoiled it a little bit because the lighting was, you know, kind of dark for the the creature, which works good for the creature. But then the eye wasn't, you know, it was hard to make out the eye, uh-huh. and that somehow when that eye is in darkness, it just looks like a plastic prop as opposed to, you know, an actual shimmering eyeball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they did it effectively in the magic mirror because they were kind of showing yes reflections and stuff like that. So. I always like to get the report from the girls, because if they get scared... (laughs) Yeah, of course, they always get excited when they hear the music, so they know Uh, something bad's about to happen. Well, he definitely sounds scary. He's got the urring sound effect. And that's what made that fly-headed creature in the the cave so effective, because when you stop and think about it, that was a ridiculous outfit. But it was one of the scarier (laughs) creatures, because it had that that rattlesnake sound. It did. It scared you before you saw it. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, moments later, our hyperactive heroes dash into the castaways' campsite, raising the alarm that danger is approaching. Warning! Warning! The rest of the Robinsons barrel out of the ship. But just as Will starts to tell Dad they're being followed by some kind of monster... Suddenly, everyone recoils in horror at the sight of the growling Goliath, trudging closer towards the rattled Robinsons. Oh, dear. Major West hands the professor a laser rifle, but for the moment, John holds his fire and cautions Don to do the same. Weapons raised, both men cautiously approach as the hirsute hulk shuffles within a few feet of them. Then watch in curiosity as it places the blinking box on a table-high boulder at the edge of the camp. You know, they let that creature get right up in their grill within eye stalk distance. That seemed really dangerous to me. If some monster approaches me and my family, or even someone in a growling bear suit carrying a blinking electronic box that looks a lot like a ticking bomb, I'm not going to let them get that close. You know, call me paranoid, but don't call me stupid. Cheesy wheezy. I know. That was wrong. <laughs> that seemed reckless, didn't it, to let them get that close? That's yeah, you crazy. know things are getting a little outlandish when even Dr. Smith is beginning to make sense. You know, it's like, I, I think that's too dangerous. You know, don't let me get close. He says something that, to that effect. And they're like, you know, it's, yeah. it's like listening to the Republicans and Democrats talk about, you know, Trump. If he says something, it's going to be the opposite, even if what he's saying is right, you know. Like, no, no, no. Oh, come on. It's just a blinking box. What could it be? A bomb? That's yeah. crazy. What do you want us to do? Wish it away? No, don't let him get that close. That's what I want you to do. Uh, Dr. Smith, the voice of reason. Yeah. Well, 
As the creature slowly backs away from the peculiar package, Judy asks what everyone at home is thinking. I wonder what that strange-looking box is. There's one way to find out, says Will, but fearing the worst, Dr. Smith warns. If you want my opinion, you'll stay well away from that diabolical contraption. It could have been left here to destroy us all. (laughs) Don barks back at Smith. What are we supposed to do, Smith? Wish it away? But just then, our castaways are momentarily baffled as a small, high-tech transceiver swivels up from the top of the alien device. Attention! Attention! But their confusion is quickly followed by apprehension as an unseen officious voice thunders in perfect English. By order of the Galaxy Tribunal of Justice, you are hereby notified that charges have been brought against you for crimes committed in space. The following Earth people are indicted. Professor John Robinson, Major Don West, Marie Robinson, William Robinson, Judy Robinson, Penny Robinson. These persons are to hold themselves in readiness to testify before the Tribunal. Hmm. The Professor and Major West exchange troubled glances and are even more puzzled when the voice explains that the Galaxy Tribunal is responsible for judging and punishing all crimes committed in interstellar space. But before the men can process this, the eerie calm is interrupted by a series of high-pitched electronic pops. As the camera cuts to a master shot of the Jupiter-2 perimeter, being rapidly surrounded by sinister sections of a futuristic electronic fence, effectively placing our castaways under house arrest, Uh uh-oh, referring to the Robinsons as the accused, the alien voice ominously warns them not to leave the area, as the fence is highly energized. Oh boy. Wow, Kurt, this episode is already living up to its name because just in a matter of minutes, our space family have gone from galactic castaways to interstellar jailbirds. But I got to ask, how impressed were you with what the script described as the energized fence, which appears to be constructed from a series of cardboard tube columns painted silver, topped with flashing lights, with large sheets of saran wrap struck between them? Oh, yeah, you noticed those little seams in the uh, the posts. <laughs> yeah, it looked, it looked like the, the spool of a toilet paper. You know, you could right. see it spiral all the way up there. Well, you know, it was an inexpensive but very cool stop-motion effect, which was just as neat to watch in Forbidden Planet, which is where it first appeared, along with Ruby the Robot, so you know that's where they saw it. But unlike in Forbidden Planet, the Lost in Space crew forgot to rake out the footprints in the sand that they made <laughs> when the crew was moving each panel over and putting it in its place. So along with each new section of fence that appeared, so did a new batch of footprints, spoiling the illusion. (laughs) But you know, I find those kinds of mistakes rather charming because they had to have noticed it when they saw the dailies. (laughs) And and we can all just imagine how that discussion with Irwin played out. You want two more hours of precious studio time to reshoot five seconds of film that I've already paid for? Are you crazy? Get back to work. Time is money. You know, So it was a stupid mistake, but it was an easy one to make. And on the genius side was the shimmering force field effect of that fence. Yes. Did you notice how it appeared to twinkle yes. as you watched it? That wasn't by luck. 
And it damn sure wasn't by expensive animation. No. Not with Irwin in charge. No, they had to come up with a clever but cheap technique (laughs) to get that effect. And as best as I can figure it, the way they did it is that they aimed a bright fill light behind a long-bladed but slow-moving fan, Uh like a a thin-blade propeller, going slow enough that you could actually grab it going that slow. That created a slight breeze along with a strobe effect that was caused by the blade coming between the light and the reflection in the crinkly plastic wrap. Mm-hmm. It made all those tiny little twinkles sweep across the fence. It was very simple, very effective, and best of all, very cheap. Yeah. <laughs> now, this is just a theory, mind you, but I think that's what exactly what it looked like to me. Yeah. And no, that's how I would have done it. No, it's cool. It, it's very cool. I, I liked it a lot. You know, it was obvious they got the saran wrap in there, but I really love that, exactly what you're talking about, that shimmering effect. And for something that, as you say, is cheap, and we all know Kodak's not giving away film stock to Irwin, so he's got to be mindful of that. It really sold it. After a while, you stopped just focusing on the fact that it's plastic wrap. You just liked that effect that you're talking about. So very cool. You know, the last time we saw saran wrap or plastic strips or whatever used that effectively, I think, was in uh, the Ghost Planet when they went through that radiation belt. That was Mm -hmm. another cheap but very effective use of that kind of stuff. So, hey. Well, you know, I see a lot of debate about that being called saran wrap. I don't think it was saran wrap. I think it was more like these strips that they use for stagecraft. I don't know if it was maybe the same material that saran wrap, but it doesn't cling at all. No, no. So, you know, I've seen it used in uh, cabaret or magician routines where they don't Mm -hmm. want you to see the wires behind them and stuff like that. And it works very well for that. That's cool. Well, just before we go to opening credits, folks, the men back away from the barrier. Then the professor decides to see just how energized this fence really is and ends this teaser with a bang by tossing a softball-sized stone straight into that saran wrap barrier, which instantly detonates in a shower of smoke and debris. Uh Uh-oh. Looks like the Robinsons are facing hard time indeed. But we'll have to wait until after the break to see what's next for our Prisoners of Space. Hello, this is 3D modeler, animator, and B9 robot builder, Phil Hamilton. And you're listening to the Alpha Control Podcast with Lane and Kurt. When we return from the break, it's still nighttime at the Jupiter campsite, and the camera watches from the other side of the filmy fence as B9 gives a report to our castaways on the alien audio unit. Although the robot informs Professor Robinson that the sophisticated device is capable of picking up ultrasonic frequencies from a great distance, he's unable to say just how far away the baffling broadcaster might be. When Don asks if there's any chance of getting through the transparent barrier, B9 answers, Negative. It remains highly energized and will cause fatal injury if touched. Ouch. The moving lights act as a radar pickup. Well, the Tribunal of Justice has made a mistake. We aren't guilty of any crimes in space. I'm not so sure of that, madam. Who knows what outlandish alien laws we may have inadvertently broken. Mm, Especially you, Dr. Smith. (laughs) Well, no, that wasn't inadvertent. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, well, surely, even in space, justice will protect the innocent and punish the guilty. A very naive concept, my dear lady. <laughs> you know, he, he delivers that in a way that almost sounds like he's being nice, but no, it's a put down. Even it is. Her. It is. <laughs> Don smirks and adds his two cents. You know, for once, Smith may be right. Anyone notice he wasn't named in the indictment? Quite right, Major. And it is because I am without guilt. Oh, I may have a few minor faults, but after all, to err occasionally is only human. <laughs> My computers have suddenly had a reaction. If you'll excuse me, I think I'm going to be sick. <laughs> <laughs> As B9 rolls out of the frame, Smith sneers. That lugubrious lump fancies himself a comedian. But the moment I stop oiling him, he'll creak a different tune. (laughs) (laughs) On that sour note, with nothing more they can do about their situation tonight, Dad suggests the children go to bed. Mom agrees, and after the kids have disappeared inside, the adults gather for a little powwow to discuss their grim circumstances. Being trapped inside this devil's island in the sky is no laughing matter, but at least they have plenty of food and water. Staying upbeat, Maureen thinks it's all a silly error that'll surely be straightened out by morning. But as usual, Dr. Smith's more focused on his own fortunes and piously announces, The next time the alien voice communicates with us, I'm going to insist that some way be found for me to leave the area. After all, there is no reason that I should be kept a prisoner. I am innocent. I wouldn't worry about it if I were you, Dr. Smith. Spending a little time with a bunch of jailbirds shouldn't hurt your reputation. I'm sure Professor Robinson and his family will be cleared. But I fear for you, Major. You are very definitely the criminal type. (laughs) Watching as Smith retreats inside the ship, the remaining castaways smile and shake their heads in resignation. Kurt, the castaways first seemed a little perplexed at being indicted and incarcerated by the Galaxy Tribunal. But I'm confused. If they were wanted for crimes committed in space... Why didn't Officer Bollocks immediately arrest them for those charges when he showed up back in All That Glitters? <laughs> Especially since that episode was written by Barty Slater, too. <laughs> now, now, Lane. We both know better than that. You worked in the Air Force. I worked for the Department of Navy. And if there's one thing you learn about the efficiency of government from working in the government, it's that there is no efficiency in the government. <laughs> Someone once said, government can't solve our problem because government is our problem. Indeed. I'm not going to subtract points for continuity in this case because that's just typical bungling bureaucracy as far as I'm concerned and completely believable. I'm reminded how a trooper arrested Timothy McVeigh after the Oklahoma City bombing for a missing license plate and carrying an unregistered firearm. McVeigh was supposed to get out on bail the next day, but the court was running behind due to a messy divorce hearing. And then the (laughs) next day, it was running late again because the judge's boy missed the school bus and he had to drive the boy to school. Meanwhile, all law enforcement is running around like the Keystone cops looking for the (laughs) suspect, but the sheriff doesn't know what the police are doing. The police don't know what the troopers are doing. Nobody knows what the FBI is doing. You know, and all this time, time, the number one most wanted man in America is literally hiding right under their nose. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So that's just how bureaucracy is. That's true. That's true. Even in space, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah. And if he hadn't overstayed his welcome by their inefficiency, he would have actually bonded out and he would have been gone again. So it's crazy. That is crazy. That's wild. 
Well, later that night, searchlights grimly sweep the perimeter of the Jupiter prison yard. And as the airlock glides open, it reveals a guilty-looking Dr. Smith who emerges from the spaceship to parley with their captors. Wearing a sly expression, Smith cautiously approaches the curious contraption outside the cellophane cell walls, but is stopped mid-stride when the alien announcer blares. Halt! Identify yourself. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Dr. Zachary Smith. What is it you want? Claiming he's always been on the side of law and order, the devious doctor offers to prove it by collecting more evidence against the Robinsons with the use of a hidden tape recorder. It's really a very simple matter, I assure you. You would betray your friends? Betray? I? My dear sir, you misjudge me. All I want to see is justice prevail. And the information I gather might well prove the others innocent instead of guilty. (laughs) I understand your reasoning very well, Dr. Smith. I had hoped you would, sir. And now, may we discuss payment for my services? Surely it would be a very small matter indeed for you to make arrangements to return me to Earth. Shall I assume we have an agreement, sir? The Galaxy Tribunal of Justice needs no help, Dr. Smith. We have all the evidence necessary for a conviction. But surely I... Your offer of aid is rejected. You are not concerned with justice. Now go before charges are brought against you for attempting to bribe the court. Go. Yes, sir. Spurned, the quaking quizzling follows orders and darts back inside the Jupiter 2, just as the hatch closes behind him. You know, that was a classic bit of Smith action, Kurt, but I thought it was pretty brazen of the good doctor to remind the alien that he was not indicted. Which brings up a question that bothered me all through this episode. There must be some piece of Lost in Space logic I'm missing, but why? Why, of all people, isn't Dr. Smith on the docket? Ah, well, uh, I'll take a stab at it, but only because a good lawyer is supposed to come up with some sort of BS to excuse his (laughs) client, no matter how guilty the bastard really is. So how does this sound? They aren't primarily interested in Smith because it's humanity that's really on trial here. Mm. And of all the passengers on the Jupiter 2, only Dr. Smith has no humanity. (laughs) I mean, the robot gets a pass because he's a machine and Debbie's a monkey, you know. Now, if that theory doesn't work, here's another possibility. Maybe they already tried and convicted Daddy Zack for the crimes that his evil twin has committed. (laughs) Now, one of the funnier visual gags that you didn't mention was that when Smith runs back to the ship, he bends his elbows and raises his hands into tiny little fists and prances back into the hatchway. (laughs) In such an effeminate manner, it's hysterical. It was. And maybe the real Jonathan Harris jogs that way, but I seriously doubt it. Everyone on the street would stare, drop-jawed, and laughed if he did. So he had to know how ridiculous that looked. It was really funny. It was funny. That was classic. I love it. I love it. But those are good excuses. I'll actually buy the no humanity bit (laughs) above all else. That's great. Mm. Well, next morning we're back outside the ship, and the men are quietly seated at the table as Mrs. Robinson offers to freshen Don's coffee. Staring at his uneaten breakfast, Major West distractedly declines the offer. Arms crossed, a bemused Professor Robinson leans back in his chair, then breaks through the preoccupied pilot's fog 
and affably asks what's bothering him. Don says he doesn't like this court trial business. Sure, from their point of view, they've done nothing wrong. But then grudgingly adds that Smith happens to be right when he says the aliens think differently. But no sooner does that admission leave West's lips than a beaming Dr. Smith comes striding out of the airlock. Well, Major, did I hear you remark that I was right about something? Then surely this must be a red-letter day in our association. (laughs) (laughs) It was an accident on my part, Smith, and I already regret it. Helping himself to Don's uneaten eggs and toast, Smith continues. I'll eat this if you don't mind, Major. Waste not, what not. An axiom you have apparently forgotten. John returns the discussion back to the indictments, causing Marine to chime in that they may have unintentionally broken some of the laws of space, but the children were charged too. Surely they couldn't have done anything. My feelings exactly, madam. Your children are perfect lambs. I would be more than happy to testify to that fact. But before she can thank the pious pretender, their conversation is interrupted by the booming voice, calling from the flashing extraterrestrial transmitter. Attention! 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 John Robinson! John Robinson, are you present? The professor bolts up and answers, yes, and is followed by an uneasy Mrs. Robinson as he moves closer to the alien mechanism. You are hereby summoned to appear before the Galaxy Tribunal of Justice immediately. With a look of high anxiety, Maureen grasps her husband's arm and weakly pleads, John, don't go. But the voice threatens. Failure to obey the tribunal's summons will be considered an admission of guilt, and punishment will be meted out to all accordingly. (laughs) Exhaling, John pauses, turns to his wife and says he thinks he'll do as they want. Besides, what have they got to be worried about? Turning back to the inscrutable blinking box, he firmly answers, I'll do as you ask. You've made a wise decision, Professor Robinson. You will step forward into the molecular transfer beam. There is no danger. The camera cuts back in the direction of the alien audio unit, and we're shown a translucent cone of light shining down on the Robinson side of the energized fence, accompanied by a high-pitched sound effect. Voice cracking, Marine whispers, Oh, John. The professor tries to calm her by clasping her hands, confidently saying, Don't worry, darling, I'll be back. But his eyes tell a different story. Not wanting to linger, John walks forward to the molecular transfer beam, then steps directly into the energy cone. And within a second, disappears with a familiar electronic After which, the beam mysteriously ascends back up into the heavens, leaving the spot where Professor Robinson had just stood as empty as Mother Hubbard's cupboard. Oh dear. The camera cuts back to Dr. Smith, still seated at the breakfast table, who sighs. Poor Professor Robinson. Poor, poor man. Softening his worries and his dry toast by dunking it in his coffee, Smith then asks what we're all pondering. I wonder if we shall ever see him again. (laughs) Kurt, I really like that molecular transfer beam effect in this episode. But I thought it was most effective on this initial use because of how Guy Williams approached that cone of light from the left side 
and then stepped on his mark where the beam effect would be added later. Then while he's inside the energy beam, John's entire image is momentarily blurred. That is until, of course, he's popped out of the frame, and then the beam is animated to climb up into the sky, which I also thought was cool, even though that's not how light really works. Yeah. Unfortunately, in subsequent sequences, the illusion was slightly marred because the actors just walked straight away from the camera towards their mark. But because the beam was added later, for a second or two, their feet were still in sharp focus while the rest of their bodies were blurred. So it kind of gave away a little bit of the special effects magic, but I'm not complaining (laughs) because going forward, they'll rarely spend big bucks to do this kind of trick shot and instead lean heavily on giant flash powder explosions to pop Robinsons, aliens, and even spaceships on and off this miserable planet. What did you think about that sequence? Oh, well, I always liked that beam from the very first time I saw Will Robinson use it to go to Earth and return from outer space. Exactly. Maybe the feet didn't blur because they weren't being disassembled at the same rate as the rest of the body was being engulfed in the beam. It would have been rather startling to rematerialize and discover you're shorter because your feet have been left back on the planet you just left. You know? <laughs> but, but seriously, John was taking a big leap of faith to just step right into that light beam. Hmm. What if it was actually a, a dematerializing beam, you know, or a laser of some sort, and the aliens were actually just picking them off one by one? Major West. The professor has requested you join him in court to collaborate his testimony. Kindly step into the disintegration. I mean, transfer beam. (laughs) How many victims could they actually pull that off before somebody finally realized, hey, you know what? We haven't even seen a badge yet. And where's our lawyer? That's a great point. No one's shown any credentials. How do we know this is a galactic tribunal, right? Exactly. Yeah. Jeez. That's wild. I hadn't even thought about that. Oh, that would be bad to get your feet left behind. (laughs) (laughs) Gee, you know, everything seems a little taller here. Oh, my God! (laughs) It's crazy. Well, next with this act nearing its apogee, we're transported to the strange, otherworldly, Stonehenge-like Galactic Tribunal of Justice courtroom. Director Juran treats us to a beautiful extended overhead crane shot, which glides over the spooky, fog-shrouded, eerily-lit limbo set that's dominated by a ring of oversized rock arches and decorated by several Egyptian-like Fox movie props we've seen used in other episodes. Interestingly, perched on top of the arch closest to the camera is that strange, insect-like winged alien creature who must be the court's bailiff, because we can hear it announcing to all that... The Galaxy Tribunal of Justice is now in session. The defendant is cautioned to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. As the camera reaches ground level, in one continuous shot, by the way, it tracks right around the outer perimeter of the set where we get glimpses of a veritable rogues gallery of other alien creatures loitering at the edges of the court. Amazingly, some appear to be creatures we haven't encountered before. But in addition to the eye stock monster we saw earlier, a few that we do recognize are the two-headed skunk cabbage from The Raft, the bog monster from Ghost in Space, the spider monster from The Keeper and Forbidden World, and finally, 
that weird, tendril-covered, supreme cybernetic brain we loved from the ghost planet. You know, Kurt, it's a beautiful way to introduce a very atmospheric setting. But what floored me in particular about seeing that cybernetic brain again was the fact that, unlike how supremely gigantic he appeared before, this time you can plainly see the size of the prop is maybe three or four feet in diameter. Mm-hmm. And that amazed me on two levels. One, it really impressed me about how in the Ghost Planet they were able to convince the viewers that the brain, as Bernie would say, was huge. And two, <laughs> I can't believe Erwin is doing it yet again, <laughs> taking what we all thought was a giant monster, and as you like to say, eh, I'll go a different direction. <laughs> oh, dude. Was that crazy? Yeah, my disappointment at seeing the cybernetic brain wasn't really very large at all. It was nothing compared to seeing that that giant spider monster was small enough to kill with fly swatter. Yeah, I haven't lost my monster erection that fast since I saw the shrunken cyclops escape from the keeper. You know, <laughs> again and again and again. But hey, it's Irwin Allen. So they not only save some money recycling it the second time, but they also save some money the first time by using a forced perspective technique to make it look bigger than it actually was. Mm-hmm. Now that's the same trick we all use as kids and we took pictures close to the camera making us look big while making something in the background that was large look smaller in comparison like the leaning tower of pisa or or the statue of liberty you know right holding your nose uh, up to its stinking armpit you know i mean <laughs> these are just tricks that we all learned as kids but it works it works very very well so you can't blame them for doing it and hey it no. did save a few shekels so why not exactly I was pretty impressed to see that many monsters, though, in one episode. This is pretty cool to have all those guys. I mean, they're sort of like crowd filler, but it is cool to see all of them. And you don't see any regular aliens standing around. It's just they're all monsters. Yeah, <laughs> like, it, it almost is like this whole episode. It brings back all these great memories. But then it, it also spoils those memories when it shows you that these are actually, you know, dwarfs. <laughs> Dude, don't give it away. Don't give it away like that. Exactly. Uh, well, we now return you to the Tribunal of Justice. Already, already in, in progress. Well, when the camera finally stops moving, it lingers on an anxious Professor Robinson, seated in a computerized witness stand, located in the dead center of the courtroom. The alien voice we heard earlier coming from the mystery box addresses the defendant, and his words make clear that he is, in fact, the judge of the forthcoming proceedings. John Robinson, are you ready to answer the charges against you? The professor insists he's done nothing wrong, and neither has his family. But cutting to a quick shot of his honor, we're shown the truly strange but vaguely familiar alien blob creature seated behind the galactic bench. Cloaked in shadows, his sapphire blue face weirdly pulsates as he counters... The tribunal will decide your innocence or guilt. Then directs the bailiff to... Activate the memory machine. John appears apprehensive as a pair of high-tech crystal brain probes on both sides of his chair glide closer to his skull. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, now those brain probes, they looked a lot like electronic power insulators to me. If I were John, I'd be more than just a little worried about getting my brain fried, but, you know, that's just me. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I was bringing back memories of uh, Jack Nicholson and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. (laughs) (laughs) 
Shock treatment. <laughs> exactly. Well, as soon as the mechanisms are in place, the professor's eyelids close, and the judge soothingly instructs. Think back, John Robinson. Back to the beginning of your journey into space. Cutting to a view over John's shoulder, we see he's facing a futuristic pedestal supporting a large monitor flanked on either side by a pair of blood-red electrical insulators. When the screen flashes on, Professor Robinson opens his eyes and watches black-and-white footage of the mission command floor at Alpha Control back on Earth, followed by shots of Will getting his pre-launch physical from Dr. Smith. As the brain probes retract from either side of John's head... The alien authority explains that what he's seen on the screen are his past memory patterns, which indicate the Jupiter 2's launch into space was perfect. That's correct, answers Professor Robinson, causing the menacing magistrate to challenge. Then how do you account for the fact that your spacecraft was off course? John testifies truthfully that Dr. Smith was trapped on board the Jupiter 2 at takeoff, and his additional weight upset their navigational balance, causing the judge to ask. Tell us, John Robinson. With your navigational balance disrupted, could you have returned to Earth? Pausing carefully to consider the question, Professor Robinson finally states, Yes, he thinks so, but something went wrong with their robot's programming, as the crystal probes slide back towards John's temples. We're shown a montage of recycled footage depicting the robot's rampage through the ship. Stop it! I order you to stop! Negative which damages the astrogator and sends the Jupiter-2 accelerating into hyperdrive. No, no! Abort! Can you hear me? Abort! 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 Destroy! And ultimately, lost in space. We're out of control! After the professor's testimony is confirmed, the screen goes dark. And since none of the other aliens wish to cross-examine the witness, the judge orders the memory machine deactivated. Then rules. We will consider the testimony you have given. You are dismissed. With that, Professor Robinson's popped off of the stand and disappears from the court. Oh, boy. You know, I gotta ask... Why is it that they step into the light and get transferred with the slow molecular beam to go there, but then they like get zapped back using the bewitched, you know, cut to <laughs> cut jump frame? Uh, and boop, 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 boop. That seems a little inconsistent, doesn't it? I mean, I don't want to be too nitpicky, but come on. Yeah, that's true. The other thing I was thinking, though, Kurt, is if this were an episode of Perry Mason, I'd say things were going pretty good for the defense, but then again, the alien judge has never actually told us what the charges against John and the rest of the Robinsons are facing. What was your sense of how the trial was going so far? Well, I tell you, if I was John, I would be more than just a little worried once I recognized the voice of the judge as the same voice that was inside my head when Cato was in Follow the Leader. I mean, come on. <laughs> so, so the future doesn't look too bright for our classic castaways. But one thing that was kind of cool was that the flashback footage is all in black and white while the current episode is shot in color. Now, obviously, all of season one was shot in black and white, so color wasn't viable. But even today, that's what you would expect to see in security footage because it's shot in black and white in order to save you know, data. 
Yep. Uh, so I thought that was just kind of a cool little subconscious detail that made it seem so much more believable. Now, of course, on the flip side, it doesn't make sense that all these scenes are not what John actually saw, not through his eyes, but rather outside his body <laughs> with him in the shots, you know? Right. And sometimes he's not even in the shots like it was when it showed Alpha Control. So I don't know. Some some sort of right. film crew was out there shooting with the medium close-ups and long shots and editing it all together <laughs> in the court. I know it sounds kind of ridiculous, but there must be some sort of invisible drone that does this for the court or something because right, how, right. how nice it is to have memories that do that. You know, they even call them makeup. We got a shiny forehead, you know. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, security footage is black and white, so it's kind of, yeah, you roll with it. You kind of just roll with it. It's fun. Well, I, for one, have got more questions than answers at this point, Kurt. But I guess we'll have to wait until after this break for station identification to see which way the jury's leaning. Lost in Space will continue after station identification. This is CBS when we return from the break to start act two we're back inside the upper deck of the jupiter two where the rest of our castaways are gathered around a seated professor robinson recounting his experiences before the galactic tribunal and that wacky alien memory machine which marine dubs truth serum with pictures indeed john says there'll be very little lying in that courtroom that gets Dr. Smith's attention. Uh, tell me, Professor, during your testimony, my name wasn't brought up, was it? In a minor way, what? Well, what's the matter, Smith? Sensing Smith's unease, Don saunters over to his arch antagonist in Bates. Are you worried? Certainly not, Major. You forget, I was not named in the indictment. Oh, that's right, too. Now I know what they mean when they say justice is blind. From what Dad told us... I think he did pretty well. So do I. Maybe Dad's testimony will be enough and we won't have to appear before the tribunal. I'm afraid not, son. The memory machine can only pick up one person's point of view. I'm afraid the aliens are going to have to interrogate all of us to get a complete picture. It's sort of like uh, putting the pieces of a puzzle together. Well, I know some pieces to that puzzle the aliens won't find. What pleasant memories our good Dr. Smith has locked away in that scheming mind of his. My conscience is crystal clear and clean, Major. (laughs) However, as I've said many times before, one never knows what the alien is thinking. And with that fact in mind, I would appreciate it if all of you would keep me out of your thoughts while testifying. But before Major West can shoot back, their repartee is interrupted by the alien audio device outside. Attention! Attention! Our castaways dutifully pile out of the ship to face the malevolent mechanism and the music. Attention, Major West. You are hereby summoned to appear before the tribunal immediately. Don grimly observes that they're not wasting any time, are they? Major West, you will step into the molecular transfer beam without delay. Apparently these aliens believe in swift justice, so there's only time for Don to turn back to the family and say, Well, I'll see you folks later. But he does linger just a moment longer to warmly clasp Judy's hands. For her part, the future Mrs. West puts on a courageous smile and watches as the plucky pilot marches towards the alien energy beam. Appearing anything but brave, our skittish scoundrel himself blurts out hysterically, Don't mention my name, Major! Ignoring Smith's plea, Don steps into the cone of light and disappears with another electronic 
pop. The Earth voyagers left behind silently crane their necks skyward and follow as the silvery transfer beam soars straight up into the cosmos and beyond. Kurt, you know, during his testimony, John never even hinted he knew Smith was actually a saboteur. But I have to say, there was something in the way Don taunted the good doctor in that scene that had me wondering if he suspects something. Were you getting that vibe at all? What, Wes suspects Smith of something bad? <laughs> Perish the thought. Now, I think Wes was more worried about what his mind reading might have revealed. Because I remember as a kid seeing this cartoon panel with two guys on it, and one says to the other, he says, they say the average guy has a dirty thought every three minutes. Do you think that's true? And the other guy goes, shh, don't interrupt me when I'm thinking. <laughs> so, if that's true, testosterone-rich Major Wes has got a lot of splaining to do when he's in court and they get inside his x-rated mind even if he and judy actually did go on walks and kept all their clothes on the whole time there's no way he didn't at least think about what he'd rather be doing with her (laughs) please let's not go there i'm just you know if i were me i'd just plead guilty and get it over with that's all i'm gonna say you know exactly yeah that would be terrible to have your (laughs) Those kinds of thoughts put up on the screen. Ooh. And then to be judged by all these monsters, you know? Exactly. Probably rolling around laughing with these big guffaws and everything. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good thing that John's not in the court at the same time Don's testifying. If that memory came up, wow. Yeah, then he might escape the capital punishment in the court, but not back at the Jupiter, too. Uh uh uh. Yeah. Well, next we dissolve back to the Galactic Tribunal, where the camera is focused on Major West, sitting confidently in that wacky witness chair. The inflexible Inquisitor opens the cross-examination by asking, A question, Major West. Have you ever seen this before? Abruptly, a silver solar wrench pops into the courtroom, hovering midair inches away from Don, who instinctively grasps it, and matter-of-factly answers that it looks like a wrench from the Jupiter II. Learning from the alien that the wrench was found floating in space, Don surmises that John must have lost it when he went out to fix the broken NGS scanner. The judge then clarifies his interest in the object. He lost a contaminated wrench, a deadly danger to anyone who happened to come in contact with it. You know, I love that line. They're on trial for contaminating space with a solar wrench. I guess that should make us feel pretty safe from alien invasion, because if they get to Earth, they're going to have to fly through an orbit that is positively littered with floating space junk. Nearly half a million pieces, and most of it's all metal. About half of it's bigger than a softball. And even the tiny pieces, if you slam into them, you know, racing through space is going to be lethal. That's why NASA devotes so much time and energy tracking all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, most of it will eventually fall to Earth at speeds going faster than 17,000 miles an hour. But don't worry. The same scientists who launched this stuff into space so that it could fall back and clobber us in the future assure us that the statistical likelihood of a person being hit by any of this stuff is actually relatively remote. One in about 300 trillion. But if you look at the statistic, that's not as to whether or not a person is going to get hit. That's whether you're going to get hit. So actually, (laughs) your odds are actually a lot higher. So it's like that guy on Dumb and Dumber. He's saying, so I still got a chance. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. Boy, it is crazy to think about all that space junk up there. And they do track it. It's amazing. They yeah. keep track of all this stuff. Right. And it's half a million pieces up there. And remember, you know, most of them are the size of a, a softball. But at 70,000 miles a minute, I mean, it could just be a little tiny, tiny little chunk. And it's still going to just go through you like a, a musket ball shot through a cannon. That was really effectively visualized in that movie. I don't know if you ever saw that with uh, Sandra Bullock and the guy from ER. Yeah. I can't think of his name. Gravity, I think, was the name of the movie. Did you ever see that? Where the, mm-hmm. some space station gets shredded apart. George this- Clooney, yeah. George Clooney, yeah. And they showed that it's like shrapnel, like exactly like you said. It was kind of frightening. Oh, and except it's actually worse on Earth because when it goes through you, it's not just a piece going at high speed. It's a red right. hot piece, you know, right. molten metal. Uh, yeah, you won't have that much time to think about it, so don't worry. Oh, but at least it'll <laughs> carterize itself as it goes through, so you got that going for you. <laughs> uh, wild. Well, back to our trial in progress here. Major West defensively replies, You don't understand. You see, it wasn't his fault. You may explain. The memory probes slide closer towards the Major's head. And we're shown the black and white spacewalk sequence from episode one as the professor struggles to repair their damaged equipment. When suddenly his lifeline to the ship somehow breaks. I love it. You know, it moves closer to his head. Maybe if we get a little closer, we'll get a clearer (laughs) memory here. Well, Don offhandedly mentions that he can't understand how it happened because Dr. Smith claimed that he had checked it out thoroughly just before John went out. Hmm. After explaining how they eventually managed to rescue Professor Robinson, Major West gallantly takes the blame, stating that as the experienced astronaut, he should have attempted to make the repair job. But the professor insisted on doing it himself, and since he was in command of the voyage, the Major had to follow orders. When the judge questions West's willingness to take the risk, Don explodes at the insult. You're way out of line. You're twisting the facts. I would have gone. The camera cuts away to the gruesome gallery's disapproving reactions, forcing the judge to restore order in the court. That will be enough, Major West. This tribunal will not tolerate anger. Checking himself, Don asks to make a statement, but his request is summarily denied. And then, with another familiar pop, Major West is dismissed, leaving the empty witness stand available for the next unfortunate defendant. Wow, Kurt, I was kind of feeling good about the way the trial was going, right up until the point where Hothead Don lost his cool and waved that solar wrench at the judge. Time to file for a change of venue, I think. But it was hard to believe that Don wouldn't be suspicious about John's line-breaking after Smith checked it out. Remember, West was already suspicious of Smith in that episode because he told the others that Dr. Smith's excuse for being trapped on board the ship wouldn't have gotten him out of Sunday Chapel at Cadet School. What say you? Uh, You keep trying to make sense out of Don being suspicious of Smith. I'm more concerned with more existential questions like, 
how is a solar wrench different from a regular wrench? I mean, it looks the same. We even got a decent close of it this time, and I still can't see any difference. It seems to perform the same function. It tightens things, but somehow it's a solar wrench and not a regular wrench. Now, if I could just solve that mystery, I could get a jump on the future and patent it before anybody else does. So, I mean, it's that close, but just floating out of reach. I can't stand it anymore. Hey, uh... I think it goes back to your earlier thing when you were talking about the Zenith TV with the space age control. It <laughs> yeah. sounds cool, right? Just, oh, this is the solar wrench. This is the regular. <laughs> well, I asked for the solar wrench, not the regular wrench. <laughs> Sorry, Don. <laughs> I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> well, next, with the act nearing a climax, we dissolve to a quiet corner of Robinson Riker's the camera is focused on a despondent-looking Dr. Smith, seated on a boulder, then slowly pulls back to reveal the robot, diligently tending to the hydroponic garden nearby. With the plastic-wrapped prison walls shimmering in the midday sun behind them, B-9 tries to lift the dour doctor's spirits with talk of coleslaw, corned beef, and cabbage. But the edgy Epicurean's mind is utterly lost in space, and the robot can only break Smith's trance by repeating... I said corned beef and cabbage, Dr. Smith. Glaring at his silver sidekick, Smith bristles. I loathe corned beef and cabbage. How can you think of eating at a time like this? Sensing that he could use a cybernetic sounding board, B-9 puts down the cabbage and rolling closer to Dr. Smith offers. I was under the impression you are always interested in eating. How little you know me, you parsimonious puppet. It is obvious that you have problems. Would you like to discuss them with me? I don't like the way this court trial is going. I don't like it at all. But you have no reason to worry. You were not indicted. That is the primary reason for my concern. Why wasn't I indicted? I'm as guilty of mistakes as any of the others. The camera alternates between close-ups of the pair as the automated analyst responds with some tough love. That is an understatement if ever I have heard one. In my opinion... You are responsible for all the mistakes. Hold your tongue, you bubble-headed booby. Suppose the aliens have this place wired and are listening. <gasps> Scanning the area with a quick ear sensor swivel, B-9 computes. We may speak without fear. The area has no hidden microphones. One never knows what those monsters are up to. I now understand. If the aliens should ask you to testify, then the truth would be revealed. So far, I've been fortunate. No one has involved me. Perhaps they won't. Who is testifying now? Will. I do hope that boy is able to keep his wits about him. Hmm. Kurt, you know, that was a remarkably interesting exchange. And to me, it proved, as he once claimed, the robot really does know Dr. Smith like a brother, including his darkest secret. Now, with the court's indulgence, sir, if you will, I request some latitude to make my case. You may proceed. <laughs> Your Honor, my argument rests on the fact that B-9 computed that if Smith testified, then, quote, the truth would be revealed. Now, I'm willing to stipulate that the word truth is imprecise and therefore not conclusive, but Smith acted like he understood exactly what it meant, which I submit strongly points to something I've suspected for some time. Namely, that regardless of any subsequent reprogramming, the robot's memory banks still retain the knowledge that it was Dr. Smith who ordered him to destroy the Jupiter II and all souls aboard. And before you tear my case to shreds, Your Honor, 
I'll just add that we've witnessed multiple instances of the robot maintaining a golden silence about Smith's other numerous nefarious acts and only spilling the beans when asked a direct question by one of the other castaways. So it's not all that far-fetched to believe that B-9 could be keeping this bombshell piece of evidence hidden as well. And with that, the prosecution rests for now. You bring up some good points, fanboy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, for the safety of the family and the mission, the robot really should tattletale on Smith's murderous intentions, even if it is water under the bridge. But let's not forget, Smith himself boasted that he carved new cybernetic pathways through the robot's bubble-headed brain. Uh So there's really no way of telling what sort of programming he may have inserted in there to protect himself. Kind of the Smithsonian version of a prime directive, if you will. Thou shall not testify against thy brain surgeon. Uh So, uh, you know, I'll I'll give him some slack on that one. Yeah. Well, it just kind of screamed that to me by the way they were talking about it and dancing around it. I was thinking, wow, is he talking about the big secret of all. But then again, as you point out, that was the scene, I think it was in The Derelict, when John caught Smith in his cabin monkeying around with the robot's brain. And he says, what are you fiddling with the robot for? Yeah. <laughs> fiddling with it, you know? And he goes, I don't fiddle, Professor. <laughs> yes, I call new pathways, cybernetic pathways. You know, we miss these scenes, but I mean, they have to happen on a routine basis. He even referred to it earlier on. He's talking about if he didn't oil them on a regular basis, he'd creak a different tune. Correct. You don't see the dreary part of Dr. Smith's day where he's polishing up the robot. Wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall during that? You know that Smith's got to be saying the little pit down the whole time, and some oil here. What you do without me, I don't know. You know I mean? <laughs> the robot, of course, has to take it because nobody else is, is equipped that knows all the insides and outsides of the robot like Smith does. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, spoiler alert, the robot's going to get another chance to get back at Smith before this is over, so that's fun. No goodie. Yeah. Well, moments later, we're back at the Erie Galactic Tribunal. Sitting in the dock this time is young Will Robinson, who appears even younger than usual because they've given him an overstuffed space-age silver booster cushion to sit on. You know, that's kind of funny to think that they have these little booster seats in the car <laughs> for all the kids who come in there, the juvenile delinquents, you know. And then what did your father do, you know? Then yeah. he touched me. Oh, dear. Yeah. Well, how futuristic can the chair be? I mean, even a barber chair, you can crank it up and down. <laughs> you know, this thing they needed to put a booster cushion in. That's funny. Oh, wow. But then again, you know, they're aliens. So maybe some of these creatures, <laughs> adults, are just like only a foot tall or something. Yeah. You never know. Little green men. Well, with the ground fog swirling around him, Will stays tight-lipped until the blobbish barrister begins the examination. William Robinson, perhaps you had better start from the beginning. Right on cue, the pitiless memory probe slide closer to the boy's head. And just as before, the view screen flickers on. Recounting their unexpected encounter with the mysterious derelict spaceship, we're shown the beautiful special effect shot of the Jupiter-2 circling and then being swallowed up by the massive alien spacecraft. But there is more to your story. As he describes wandering off to explore the strange ship, the monitor cuts to a shot of Will standing awestruck inside the bubble creature's hive and then being spooked when one of the hideous creatures slowly rises up from a sea of blobs behind the defenseless boy. 
but the justice reveals. When you entered the bubble chamber, you automatically caused the space colonists within to become defrosted. Abruptly, the screen switches off, and the crystal globes glide away, as Will truthfully insists that he didn't have any way of knowing that. Unmoved, the judge explains. By defreezing the bubble creatures, you shortened their lifespan, William Robinson. The camera cuts to a close-up of the noble lad, who digests the unintentional consequences of his little stroll through the derelict, and sincerely responds, I'm really sorry, sir. I didn't know. You are young, but ignorance of the laws of space is no excuse. Cutting back to his inscrutable blue face glowing through the murkiness, his honor expounds. We cannot allow trespassers from Earth to come into space, break our laws, then go unpunished. Maybe we have made some mistakes in the past, sir, and we're sorry about them. But couldn't you just forget them and let us start over again? The ghoulish gallery of alien creatures nod in approval as the justice responds. You ask for the impossible. The wheels of justice have been put into motion. They must travel their course. Will gulps and answers remorsefully. Yes, sir. One thing more. The tribunal has a message for Dr. Smith. Tell him that tomorrow he will be summoned to testify. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> But before Will can say more, the judge announces, William Robinson, you are dismissed. Oh, boy. (laughs) You know, Kurt, after Will's testimony, I'm getting a better sense of where the trial is headed, and I'm thinking it might be time for a plea bargain, especially after the judge announced that it was Smith's turn on the stand next. Oh, the pain. But seriously, I did like seeing that old footage from the derelict, And it was also interesting to hear the judge refer to the bubble creatures as colonists. Did you catch that? No, I didn't, but that was a good catch. I was surprised to hear him refer to themselves as bubble creatures, though. As I said before, they look more like space barnacles to me. But I'm loving that blue light that blinks whenever he talks. But since when did they talk, let alone speak English? Before, they used that electronic zapping thing to communicate. Right. They could have continued that tradition here and have a microphone that translates the zapping into a deep canto voice that we hear. But that would have required some animation, which might have meant more money, which would have been, ah, ah, ah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, this act has certainly left us hanging, but I guess we'll have to wait until after this commercial recess to find out if Dr. Smith will be the next thing to hang. Lost in Space, brought to you by... Here it is, the most amazing food wrap ever developed, Saran Wrap. That's right, there's nothing like Saran Wrap. It's the crystal clear plastic that lets you see everything you wrap. Saran Wrap clings like magic. Just press it into place over any bowl or dish, and it stays. You have a smooth, tight cover that keeps flavor locked in. Saran Wrap keeps food fresh far longer, too. Prove it in your own kitchen. Pick up a roll of Saran Wrap today in the blue and yellow box. You'll love it. Get Saran Wrap at your grocer's. Saran Wrap is a product of the Dow Chemical Company. When we return from the break to start Act 3, 
We're outside the ship, focused on an empty chair at the Robinson's dinner table. As Mrs. Robinson dishes out the vittles, she wonders aloud, what's keeping Dr. Smith? Picking up the empty chair, Major West grins and declares, it's empty, but I don't believe it. The others chuckle at Don's joke, everyone except Will, who takes a seat wearing a troubled expression and reports that Dr. Smith isn't very hungry and asks to please be excused from the table. John Riley notes, that's the first time he can recall Dr. Smith ever missing a meal. Marine wonders if their missing miscreant isn't ill. But it's no mystery to Don, who flatly says, Smith's sick with worry, adding between bites that testifying tomorrow has really shaken up their nefarious nuisance. Clueless, Judy naively says that Dr. Smith told her he didn't mind appearing before the tribunal. It was that memory machine he didn't like. Don's looking forward to Smith's day in court, though, because for the first time in his life, he's going to have to tell the truth, and that's going to be a whole new experience for our dear Dr. Smith. The professor surprises Major West by saying he doesn't blame Smith for being worried. After all, that courtroom's not a very friendly place. Penny chimes in, she's sorry Dr. Smith must go, but glad they called him before her. Judy seconds the motion. With his food left untouched, Will tells Mom he's worried about Dr. Smith and asks to be excused to keep him company. The parents exchange knowing looks. Then a smiling Professor Robinson answers, Sure, go on. Thanking him, Will leaps up and heads out of camp to console his bothered buddy. After he's left, Mama Chef gazes at the serving platter she's holding and laments, Oh, and I made such a lovely meatloaf. <laughs> uh, yeah, nobody knows how to press those computer food buttons like Maureen. She's quite the cosmic chef. <laughs> Indeed. That's true, Kurt. That's true. But watching that scene reminded me, even though all the Robinsons were indicted by the Galactic Tribunal, spoiler alert, only the males ever wind up being called to testify. Heck, they even preferred calling the lone male child to the stand over the adult Mrs. Robinson. So, Kurt, based on this blatant demonstration of systematic male bias and sexism by the alien court, I'm confident the ACLU will have no trouble getting the Robinson's conviction tossed out on appeal. What say you? Oh, yeah, that's for sure. On, on wokeness issues. It's the ultimate politically incorrect crime of the universe. <laughs> that, that and the fact that the only black character that we've seen so far was Robbie the Robot. But on the plus side, they're one of the first shows to promote people of color who happen to be silver, gold, or bright carrot orange. <laughs> so we do have that to look forward to. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Well, next we cut back to that happy little corner of the interstellar stockade, where a glum Dr. Smith is still seated on his favorite rock, with a robot offering more words of encouragement. Cheer up, Dr. Smith. All is not lost. Spare me the platitudes. I'm doomed. Doomed. Dr. Smith? Just then, the junior jailbird scampers into the frame and plunks himself down on the rocky ledge next to the mournful medic. I've come to keep you company, sir. You're a true friend, William. I can think of no one with whom I would rather spend my last few hours of freedom. Cutting between close-ups of the three pals, Will tries to reassure the alien tribunal only wants to ask you a few questions, Dr. Smith. It won't be so bad. I'm afraid not, my boy. I have a sixth sense about these things. Tomorrow, we'll see the end of Dr. Smith. What you have said is true. If the memory recaller reveals the past, then your fate is indeed sealed. 
The voice of doom is heard in the land. And you mustn't testify, Dr. Smith. Easier said than done, my boy. There is a way you can escape. Smith rises, and Will follows as he takes a few steps towards the energy fence. Escape? Bah! What do you suggest I do? Grow a set of wings and fly over the fence? You will never have to worry about becoming an angel, Dr. Smith. How dare you? I am being faced with destruction, you disreputable dunderhead, and you making ain't jokes? What did you have in mind? I've considered the matter carefully. An escape is possible. Well, stop chattering and tell me how! It will require daring, courage, determination, fortitude, and split-second timing. Daring, courage, fortitude? I have all of those attributes. Now what do you have in mind? With a glimmer of hope piercing the gloom, Dr. Smith and Will rejoin their roly-poly plotter and lean in close as B-9 lowers his voice synthesizer. This is what must be done. Shh. Shh. Tonight, when everyone is asleep. <laughs> Kurt, I loved when Smith told Will that he had a sixth sense that the end was near. <laughs> but were you surprised that the robot of all characters would suggest that Smith run from the law? No, not until you pointed it out, but now it's starting to bother me. Yeah, thanks a lot. Now, I think uh, we all got a chuckle out of when Smith declared himself as possessing the attributes of daring, courage, and fortitude. (laughs) I choked on my drink and blew my milk out my nose on that one. That was funny. Yeah, that's great. Well, that was staged too beautifully, how they all kind of leaned in together. (laughs) Yeah, a little hammy. It was a little hammy, but it worked. Well, later that evening, we dissolve on the robot, standing alone a few yards from the half-open Jupiter-2 airlock. B-9's silvery torso follows the course of the alien searchlight as it sweeps across the otherwise deserted sand of the Robinson campsite. When the beam moves away, the robot swivels back towards the hatch and signals to his friends waiting inside the ship that the coast is clear. Dr. Smith and Will, a spade in each hand, scamper out of the ship to rejoin their robotic ringleader who warns, There is grave danger of being detected. We must be extremely careful. I still don't think it will work. The moment the radar beam hits us, the aliens will know we're here. I'm extremely big. If you stay in my shadow, then the radar will reveal only my presence. What if it doesn't work that way? Then the game is lost. Very quiet, please. But just then, B9's ear sensors swivel, and he alerts. The light is approaching. He must have heard that light approaching. (laughs) Smith yelps. And instinctively grabs Will as both boys dive for cover behind the robot. Who goes there? Identify yourself. The boys hold their breath as B9 answers. It is only me, the Robinson robot. The invisible Inquisitor grills the robot over his presence outside the ship. But somehow, he convinces the alien that he's merely fulfilling his programming to patrol the area and protect the Earthlings from danger. Seemingly satisfied with the cover story, the mistrustful magistrate allows B-9 to proceed. And after the searchlight turns away from our captive comrades, they move to the far side of the Jupiter-2, while comically reminding each other to shh, shh, and stay very quiet. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, I'm going to play science nerd here and ask the obvious. What's the point of the searchlight? I mean, not only are there no guards in the towers in order to operate them or to see what they reveal, but there's no real purpose because they've already told us the electrified fence is monitored with radar. Right, right. But at least the searchlights look cool, even though it does kind of bring up this Hogan's Hero <laughs> feeling the whole time, you know. I keep yeah. expecting to see LeBeau, you know, come yeah. out from underneath one of the, the boulders. Yeah, LeBeau. <laughs> Oh, sorry, wrong set. Uh, yeah, it's time for bollocks to show up as well. That's funny. Yes. <laughs> Never been a successful escape from Starlog Jupiter 2. <laughs> mm. Well, finally reaching the site for Smith's jailbreak, the robot stands watch and orders them to get busy and dig. Will hands Dr. Smith one of the spades, but it looks like a big job for even two people, because while the electrical wall in front of the ship has a good foot of clearance between the bottom of the fence and the ground, unfortunately, this section has no gap at all. In fact, it looks like someone dumped an entire truckload of sand, forming a massive berm right where they have to dig. Oh, the pain. <laughs> yeah, that was probably the robot's doing. He's figuring, hey, we'll have him dig here because that's the way it's really going to hurt Dr. Smith's back. <laughs> <laughs> but you had to love that. They picked the one spot that's got all that sand pushed up under the fence. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, in any event, with Smith keenly observing, Will takes first shift. But when we dissolve to some time later, although much sand has been cleared, the camera pulls back to reveal our old lazy loafer comfortably seated and still watching as the dear boy shovels away. Hurry, Will. Hurry. I would help you, but my back is a disaster today. Oh, the pain. The pain. While the boy digs on, the robot rolls some distance away from the fence to scan for trouble. But when he glides back to rejoin the others, he declares, Enough. The aliens will become suspicious if I remain in this spot any longer. You must try to squeeze under the fence, Dr. Smith. The hole is not deep enough. You must try or it will be too late. If I touch that fence, I'll be barbecued. You can make it, Dr. Smith. Would you rather remain here and testify tomorrow? I can't. I can't. The light is approaching. Quickly. Robot, what are you doing there? Smith dives into the foxhole, and Will crouches behind their cybernetic sidekick, then whispers, Hurry, Dr. Smith! Bathed in the brilliant search beam, B-9 runs interference with the alien authority as the fearful physician slowly backcrawls under the edge of the lethal barricade, clearing it by mere millimeters. Oh dear. Unfazed by the robot's excuses, the judge demands B-9 move away from the fence immediately. Will keeps on coaching Dr. Smith to go on, go on. But the doctor's barely halfway across as the alien voice thunders. A final warning. Move away. Out of time and alibis, our electronic equivocator stalls a few more seconds by responding that I will obey your command. Then explains to Dr. Smith I will have to move or they will destroy me. And in so doing, destroy will. Thankfully, just as the robot rolls out of the frame, the boy glances back as Dr. Smith silently emerges on the far side of the fence and pauses behind a purple boulder to issue a final finger wave adieu. 
Their mission accomplished, Will waves back, then quickly races back to the ship, while Dr. Smith scampers off into the night, a cosmic fugitive from justice. Oh, the pain. (laughs) Well, Kurt, somehow Smith made it out from under that wall, so I'll give him points for that. But I'm still not convinced he's capable of avoiding recapture or even surviving alone on a hostile alien planet, especially with no food, water, or other survival gear. So I'm betting we haven't seen the last of Dr. Smith. What do you think? Ah, well, you forget. Who needs food or water when you have a still? (laughs) Just wait, you'll see. Well, next morning, with the act nearing a closure, we're behind the alien boombox, looking through the cling-wrap-clink wall as the robot silently mans solitary watch. Suddenly, the morning solitude is broken by the officious voice of the tribunal trial master. Attention! Attention! Dr. Zachary Smith is hereby summoned to testify before the Galaxy Tribunal. The commotion brings Professor and Mrs. Robinson, Don and Will, piling out of the open airlock. But there's no sign of the eccentric SAP. Attention! Attention! Dr. Smith will come forth. The major jokes. Where is Smith? His moment of truth has arrived. But no one's seen him yet. So Maureen goes in to check on him, while the men split up to search the rest of the area outside, leaving Will and B-9 alone with the bossy box, who repeats. Dr. Smith, the tribunal is waiting. Come forward at once. Dr. Smith isn't here. He escaped last night. He was afraid to testify. The witness could not have left this area without help. You will all be severely punished for what you have done. No one knew about the escape except myself and the robot. You will all be punished. Can't blame the others. They're not responsible for what happened. The penalty for aiding a witness to escape is five years imprisonment on the planet Dolpha. Uh-oh. Distressed at the thought of the family being punished for his sins, our young space pioneer asks the alien permission to find Dr. Smith and bring him back. At first, the judge balks, but when the boy promises to return, he relents, but sternly warns. Very well, William Robinson. You will be released. If you do not return in two hours, then your family will be taken to the prison on Dover. With a familiar pop, a section of the energy fence disappears. But before he exits the alien Alcatraz, Will pledges, I'll bring Dr. Smith back. Don't worry. Very well, William Robinson. You may go. I too wish permission to search. I too am responsible for what has happened. You may go. But as soon as the robot rolls out of the frame, the menacing mechanism mercilessly seals the slammer shut again with another sinister pop. You know, that scene certainly left us all in high anxiety, Kurt, especially when you consider Will and B-9 only have two hours to find Dr. Smith before they're all given a five-year sentence on the planet Dole Firm, which I'm guessing is not a white-collar country club jail. But I have to ask, even if the boys somehow managed to bring Smith back, What are the chances that Will is finally going to face the music from Daddy Robinson for secretly helping Smith escape and then running off yet again without permission? 
Yeah, well, he's definitely in for another stern lecture, all right. Maybe even another slap on the wrist. But, you know, whenever you hear that music playing in the background, you know he's just kind of cutting up inside thinking, eh, here we go again. Exactly. That's funny. Well, even though time's running out on our desperate space pioneers, we'll have to take time out for this important word from our sponsor. Lost in Space has been brought to you by... This nonprofit podcast is made possible with support from... Monster Wax Trading Cards, makers of science fiction and horror monster cards since 1992. Check out their newest series, Lost in Space, The Art of Ron Gross. It's a dramatic retrospective of the classic TV show in an incredible photorealistic style. Check them out at monsterwax.com. That's monster, W-A-X, And also through the generous support of listeners via Patreon, where fans fuel their favorite shows. If you'd like to help, just visit patreon.com and search Alpha Control. Dr. Schmidt! When we return from the break to start what might be the castaway's final verdict, we're some distance from the campsite. Suddenly, a desperate will races out from behind a large purple boulder, vainly calling for Dr. Smith. Dr. Smith! Trailed closely by B-9, who announces that they only have 42 minutes and 16 seconds left before the deadline, which, for some reason, is the moment that the robot finally decides to reveal that he knows Dr. Smith's location. That was odd. Yeah. What's, what was all the time wasted for? Gotta make it suspenseful, right? I guess. Mm. Well, our frantic friends dart off in a flash to find the fugitive physician. And moments later, Will and the robot arrive back where it all began. The rocky grotto site of Dr. Smith's illicit bootlegging operation. Hey, you were right. They find the cheery booze hound seated at his workbench with a glass of his special vintage in hand. We found you! Your good health, gentlemen. Well, have you escaped too? The aliens let us out. We have come for you, Dr. Smith. You must return with us. They're blaming everyone for your escape. And unless you come back, they're going to send us all to a prison on another planet. Drinking in their words and some more wine, Smith replies with a look of apprehension. I'm terribly sorry, my dear boy. Really, I am. We haven't got much time left. We'll have to hurry. We must return in 24 minutes and 10 seconds. Come on, Dr. Smith. Tugging on Smith's arm, the boy urges, but the doctor doesn't budge. I would really like to do as you wish, William, but unfortunately, I can't. You see, if I testify, the results would be disastrous for me. But you can't let everyone else go to prison for something they didn't even do. I know what you're thinking, William, but this is a question of survival. It is every man for himself. (laughs) Dr. Smith does not understand the importance of the matter. If you'll excuse us for a moment, I am sure I can explain the situation. The camera follows as Will despondently shuffles a few feet away, then closes in on the boy's disappointed face before cutting back to the robot, who swiftly lifts the obstinate outlaw to his feet, using a full Nelson from behind. If you will come with me, Dr. Smith... You will come back by your own decision, or I will carry you back. Struggling to break free from B-9's vice grip, Dr. Smith sees. 
How dare you threaten me, you tyrannical tinplate? Unhand me at once, do you hear? Which will it be? By your own volition, or must I force you? One way, you may keep Will's friendship and respect, and the other way... Very well. I shall return. Released, Smith plops back on his seat with a yelp. (laughs) But I'll never forgive you for this. Never! Composing himself, Smith rises and moves to Will's side. Then placing a hand on the boy's shoulder, he says, William, my dear boy, I have reconsidered. When the welfare of the group is involved, the individual must sacrifice his personal safety. Then you're coming back with me, sir? Indeed I am. Raising his unfinished glass of wine high, Dr. Smith solemnly vows. As that most noble character, Sidney Cotton, said in A Tale of Two Cities, it is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. Never fear, Smith is here. Setting down his empty goblet, Dr. Smith cuts his eyes over his shoulder at B9. You'll pay dearly for this. Come along, William. You too, you ridiculous rustabout. Then the trio march out of the frame, so Dr. Smith can make his date with destiny. (laughs) You know, Kurt, I really enjoyed that scene, especially seeing Smith change his tune after a little friendly persuasion from the robot. But I did think it was funny that Will acted as if he didn't hear any of that dialogue and seemed to buy Smith's sudden change of character. (laughs) What'd you think? Oh, yeah, he was right there. He was only Mm -hmm. four feet away. He had to hear it all. They weren't even whispering. (laughs) But it was a funny scene, nevertheless, especially when Smith compares himself to what is basically the hero of A Tale of Two Cities, who sneaks into prison to swap places for someone who's about to get beheaded, as compared to Smith, who sneaks out of prison so that everyone else can suffer. Mm -hmm. Smith has compared himself to the great Ronald Coleman character in the 1935 Hollywood classic. You've got to love it. Yeah, that's great. His change is so great, though. He steps up, he has the glass in his head. He's suddenly all full of vim and vigor, ready to step forth once more into the fray. That was great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Crazy. Well, next we dissolve back to the Jupiter Jailhouse, where an uneasy Dr. Smith flanked by the entire Robinson expedition, takes a few tentative steps toward the scintillating saran wrap fence. Abruptly, the jittery jailbird startled into silence when the blinking box blares. The tribunal is waiting, Dr. Smith. Stunned, he finally manages to timidly respond. Yes, I knew. Turning back to the others, Dr. Smith softly speaks to Will. Well, my dear boy, we've come to the parting of the ways. Think kindly sometimes of dear Dr. Smith. You'll be back, sir. I know it. I don't have your youthful confidence. Addressing the rest of his adopted space family, he sadly says, Goodbye, all. Speaking for everyone, Maureen responds by wishing Dr. Smith the best of luck. Thank you, dear, dear lady. But just then, the tender parting of the ways is interrupted off-screen by the piercing tone of the molecular transfer beam. Oh, dear. A look of dread falls across Dr. Smith's careworn face. Then he weakly bids them farewell. After forcing himself to walk directly into that ominous cone of light, the downcast defendant turns back to face his friends. But the aliens must detest long goodbyes as well, because before he can even... (laughs) 
offer a final finger wave adieu, Dr. Smith is popped out of this world. Leaving our castaways watching helplessly as that shaft of light once more disappears into the stratosphere. And you gotta love that wave that he gives. That's basically the queen wave. <laughs> right. <you know? laughs> no comments here. No comments. <laughs> The royal queen wave goodbye. Yeah. Yeah, I know. But we've seen Dr. Smith put on some Oscar-winning performances to garner sympathy before Kurt. But I must be getting soft because this time he had me buying his act. How did it strike you? Well, I think the Oscar award for the best actor in this scene has to go to Major West because he somehow manages to keep a straight face and avoid smirking when he knows that Smith is finally going to face the music. Touche. That's a good point. Uh Well, moments later, we cut back to an overhead view of the gothic galactic tribunal chamber, when suddenly a whimpering Dr. Smith is popped into the witness chair. Where am I? What is this place? I don't like it. But before he can get his bearings, the judge speaks from the shadows. Dr. Smith, you have greatly inconvenienced this tribunal. Have you anything to say in your defense? I do indeed, Your Honor. I ran away to protect my friends. I was afraid my testimony would prove injurious to their case. The alien jurist replies evenly. A very noble gesture. Then orders. Activate the memory machine. Ah! What is wrong, Dr. Smith? This contraction won't work with me. And why not? Because my mental processes are much too complicated. All you're going to get is a series of confused facts. Do not worry, Dr. Smith. The truth will be uncovered. The mendacious medic shifts uncomfortably in his seat as the camera cuts away to the mist-shrouded fright gallery of monsters in attendance. Testimony has been given that you were accidentally trapped on the Jupiter II and forced to come along with the Robinson party. That is absolutely correct, sir. Will you tell the tribunal the circumstances which led up to this unfortunate happening? I would be happy to, sir. You see, I had gone aboard the Jupiter II to make a final check. The monitor flashes on, displaying Dr. Smith's big entrance, gliding out of a storage compartment on an acceleration couch on the lower deck of the Jupiter II. Merely a routine inspection. Then why were you in hiding? I was only resting after a trying day. (laughs) Smith's face betrays worry as we're shown the treacherous traitor rise from his state of repose, then deftly switch out a memory spool in the robot's programming bay. I can assure you my heart was with these wondrous space pioneers, and I was trying to make sure their trip to the heavens was a safe and secure one. But after the smirking saboteur activates its power supply, the robot spills the beans by mechanically reciting the details of his monstrous mission. At exactly launch plus eight hours, inertial guidance system, destroy... Radio transmitter, destroy. Cabin pressure control system, destroy. Uh Uh-oh. It's a devastating piece of evidence that unmasks Smith's true intentions. The memory screen goes dark, but Dr. Smith grows darker, and a bit of panic creeps into his voice as he goes on offense. You see, 
I told you the machine wouldn't work with me. That's not what actually happened. Then the truth is, you entered the spaceship with the purpose of sabotaging it. Of course not. I've never heard of anything so ridiculous. Now, this is what really happened. Regaining his composure, Dr. Smith cuts his eyes as the crystal probes close in on his scheming brain. I made some minor adjustments on the robot. But instead of what really happened, this time the monitor shows nothing but static. You are lying, Dr. Smith. Look at the memory machine. We will continue with the testimony. Dr. Smith, William Robinson testified that he accidentally defrosted the bubble creatures on the derelict spaceship. Will you tell your version of this incident? (coughs) Oh, yes, I will, sir. I have always had the utmost regard for aliens. It is true that they may be a bit different from me physically. The static clears, then shows a homesick Dr. Smith and an inquisitive will trying to communicate with the derelict aliens. Despite Smith's return to Earth fever, Will tries first to make the aliens realize that they come in peace, but the boy's hands-across-the-stars message gets lost in translation when the impatient interloper loses it and fires a quick laser blast at one of the bubble creatures. Doesn't seem to read me no matter what I say. He'll read this! Uh Uh-oh. When the memory machine switches off, Dr. Smith offers a weak rebuttal. It was an accident. I really didn't mean them any harm. The facts speak for themselves, Dr. Smith. You are called only as a witness in this trial. But your testimony indicates that you are guilty of many crimes. Lashing out into the dark, Smith wails. What man of courtroom is this, anyway? After all, a man is innocent until he is proven guilty, and I am innocent. The creepy-crawly court creatures respond to his outburst with shrieks and growls of displeasure. I don't like sitting here in the dark. I demand to see with whom I'm speaking, the judge and the jury. Very well, Dr. Smith. Rising from the stand... Dr. Smith gropes his way across the dim, swirling, fog-covered chamber as he tries to make the tribunal see his side of the case. After all, of what am I really accused? A few slimy, bubble-like creatures were destroyed? Well, after all, we are sophisticated men of the world, both of us, eh? Of the galaxy? But when the lights are unexpectedly raised, those trifling things happened and... The shocking sight leads Smith to scream in horror. I am Judge Iko. I am one of those slimy, bubble-like things that you spoke of. There is your jury. They are your peers from outer space, Dr. Smith. Would you care to consult with any of them? No! Smith backs away from the repulsive blob behind the bench but only succeeds in stumbling headlong into another gruesome alien. Oh dear. (laughs) When Dr. Smith finally collapses back into the witness chair, Judge Iko restores order. Citizens of space, have you reached a verdict? 
How find ye? Speaking on behalf of the jury, Iko translates. We find the Robinson party not guilty of the crimes charged. Oh, thank heavens. I'd recommend that their case be dismissed. Good. Now you can send me back to my friends. Smith lurches from his seat, but... Uh-uh-uh. Not so fast. Dr. Smith, however, was not a member of the original Robinson group, and his case has been considered separately. What? What? We find that he has been responsible for all the crimes charged against the Robinsons and have found him guilty on all counts. We recommend that the tribunal punish Dr. Smith to the limit of the law. Having heard the jury's verdict, the cowardly conniver slinks down in his chair and listens in utter trepidation as his worst fears are confirmed. Dr. Smith, the jury has found you guilty. This tribunal will pass sentence tomorrow. Until that time, you are dismissed. Bizarrely, once Smith pops out of sight, the tribunal's cast of creatures erupt in a flurry of ghoulish delight. Oh dear indeed. Wow. Kurt, I can't say that I'm surprised, and it's hard to see how Dr. Smith could be surprised at the verdict, because he had to know the evidence was stacked against him. But instead of admitting his guilt, he doubled down and was convicted by his own memories. Is there any chance that he'll sing a different tune at the sentencing phase? Because I, for one, would feel a lot better about Smith if he'd finally show a shred of genuine remorse for his original sin of sabotage that led to so many other crimes in space. What's your judgment? Well, Smith has rarely shown remorse before, and only then when Penny and Will were suffering for his actions. Mm -hmm. But even then, the penance only lasted for less than a week before the next episode (laughs) began. When he faces punishment alone for his misbehavior, his go-to position is to lie and try to squirm out of it. So don't expect the leopard to change his spots here. You know, it just doesn't look very good. It doesn't look promising from that angle, no. Mm. Well, later, with this case nearing summation, we're back outside the spaceship. Seated at the picnic table, Professor Robinson's busy signing some sort of official document. When he hands it over for Major West to read, Don laughs out loud, then shaking his head agrees to sign it, even though he's sure Smith will never go along with it. Keeping us in suspense over the controversy, Mrs. Robinson merely says she thinks it's unfair and fights back a guilty smile. But lacking any better ideas, she too adds her signature to the paper. Just then, the children come scampering into camp, with a forlorn Dr. Smith bringing up the rear. The parents ask everyone to sign the paper, which they explain is a clemency petition they hope will influence the aliens to dismiss their charges against Dr. Smith. I appreciate any effort you make on my behalf, but you're wasting your time. The wheels of alien justice have turned. There's no hope. Mm. But Smith's meek air of resignation turns into boiling outrage when he discovers the basis for the appeal. Insane? I? How dare you! I won't do it! I absolutely refuse! I'd rather go to jail for a hundred (laughs) years! Everyone bites back laughter at Smith's out-of-order reaction. 
The very idea. I've always had full control of my mental faculties. Don tries to talk the doctor down off the ledge. It was just a thought, Smith. We don't even know if it'll work. Of course, if you'd rather face the alien sentence, torture, or some other fiendish punishment. Did you say torture? <laughs> fiendish punishment? <laughs> Who knows what the aliens are capable of doing? Clasping his heart, Smith changes his tune. Judy, sign quickly. Will, get the robot. He could put an X for his name. Torture indeed. Well, who cares if this entire universe thinks that I'm insane? I know that it's not true. I'm sane, sane, sane. Do you hear? I'm as sane as I ever was. I'm even saner than I ever was. Oh, oh dear. (laughs) (laughs) Later that night, the family waits outside for the tribunal to rule on their appeal. Dr. Smith anxiously paces back and forth, flanked by the robot, who comically imitates every sigh, moan, groan, and involuntary gesture the fearful felon employs to pass the time. Stressed beyond the breaking point, Smith turns his ire on B-9. Will you stop that? You're making me terribly nervous, you ninny. I am extremely concerned. Movement relieves my sensory tensions. Why have we heard from the aliens? It's been hours since we gave them that petition. It's been exactly three hours, twelve minutes, and five seconds. Silence, you cackling clod. Oh, really, Dr. Smith, you must try to relax. Worrying isn't going to help at all. The fact that we haven't heard might be a hopeful sign. But Major West can't resist needling his nervous nemesis one more time. Personally, I think it's a cut-and-dried situation. Smith's off his rocker, and if it's uh, obvious to me, it's bound to be obvious to the aliens. You're a cruel man, Major. But just then... Attention! Attention! The Galaxy Tribunal of Justice has reached a decision. Will Dr. Zachary Smith come forward? The good doctor scurries over to the alien audio box, followed quickly by the others who gather near for support. Dr. Zachary Smith at your service, sir. Dr. Smith, after lengthy discussion, the tribunal has reached an agreement on the petition in your behalf. Yes, yes, go on. The laws of Earth and space are vastly different, but in one area we agree. An individual who is mentally incompetent cannot be held responsible for his actions. Therefore, the case against you is dismissed. Oh, I'm saved, saved. Everyone rejoices, and their joy is doubled when the aliens free everyone by popping the energy fence away for good. Attention! It is further decided that Dr. Smith must have someone to make decisions for him and keep him out of trouble. He is therefore placed in the custody of the robot. What? What? You can't do that to me. I'm perfectly capable of making my own decisions. You wouldn't dare, would you? Never mind, Dr. Smith. I will take good care of you. You will go to bed early. Work hard. Speak only when spoken to. I will never take orders from you. Never. Oh, oh, come back. Come back. Listen to me. I'm perfectly sane. I knew exactly what I was doing. Please come back. Oh, the pain. The pain. The castaways share giggles as the case closes with another lighthearted, all's well, that ends well, happy ending.
Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt, give us your thoughts on The Prisoners of Space. Well, it was a good episode. I expect most people would enjoy it. It was serious for the most part and reminds us of the deadly Dr. Smith long before he became possessed by the spirit of the cowardly clown posse. It also had numerous monsters, most of which were recycled from previous episodes, but at least one red-orange character that I didn't recognize from before that looked pretty cool, the one with the the spikes or horns on his back. That was new. Yeah. And of course, the flying monkey mashup with the fly mask. But one thing that was hard to explain away for me was why, after they had been found innocent, why didn't they say, great, now since you're the police force around here, do you mind helping us get back to Earth? Maybe use that molecular (laughs) transfer beam, you know, and get us back there. It was just kind of weird. They always seem to forget that. They did the same thing with bullocks and everything. You know, you would think that'd be first and foremost on their mind. Yeah, especially when the aliens know about Earth. So it's not like they've never heard of Earth. So you'd think they could give them a lift back, you know? Yeah, and plus, you know, they've already indicated they don't really like these guys being around in space. So it would be (laughs) in their interest to get them back to Earth, right? Exactly, exactly. Then we could stay out of your hair and this won't happen again next season when Irwin Allen needs (laughs) needs to save some more time and money and does another reclip show, you know? Uh Uh-huh. Which, spoiler alert, he will. Oh, really? We we get another one in season three, yes. That's great. You cannot predict anything that this guy won't do if it saves a buck. That's just wonderful. You nailed it. Oh, wow. Well, but no one thinks to ask for help, but, you know, I guess that's too obvious. They're too busy yucking it up over Dr. Smith's puny little punishment at the hooks of the robot. Whatever. But nitpicky things like that aside, I enjoyed watching it multiple times, and I expect others will, too. Can I count on you to be among that crowd, or... Do I have to defriend you? No, absolutely. I think this is probably my favorite episode of the second season so far. I I think it had a great premise. I liked the whole trial format, which was different. And like you said, it had enough monsters for a whole season of Lost in Space. Even though it might have been a little light on action or real frights, it had a creepy vibe. I never felt like it was slow. So I thought it was a fun ride from start to finish. So in short, the prisoners of space held my attention captive for 52 minutes of entertainment. And that's a sentence I'll gladly serve any day of the week. Wow. Well, you know, this dark, boulder-covered landscape with this collection of various monsters mulling about reminds me of some monsters I used to collect as a kid. Those old Aurora monster models. Did you ever collect those? They were great. Well, I wouldn't say I had a collection. I know that I built at least three of them that I can remember. I built the Dracula the Frankenstein, and uh, for some reason, the Phantom of the Opera uh-huh. was one that I built. But I wanted all of them, and I was really sad I don't have them. I wish I had them today. Yeah, there were 13 different ones besides the Frankenstein, and you said Dracula, and did you say Wolfman? Uh, Phantom of the Opera, Oh, I think, Phantom of it? the Opera, where they also had the Wolfman, they had the Mummy, they had the Creature of the Black Lagoon, he was a great one, Yeah, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, King Kong, Godzilla... Ooh. The Witch. They had one called The Witch. Yeah. And they even had one that Forrest J. Ackerman designed, supposedly, called The Forgotten Prisoner of Casimir, yeah. you know, which was the least exciting because it was basically just a skeleton in chains. Those models were only about a foot in height, which didn't make a whole lot of sense because Godzilla and King Kong were also a foot in height. It's like, wait a minute. This is kind of reminding me of Irwin Allen and the Cyclops yeah. here. But, yeah. but those models, they were really detailed, and the box artwork for them was to die for. Awesome. Yeah. The painter's name was James Bama or Bama. Yeah. It's spelled B-A-M-A. Okay. And there was no way 
the models could possibly compete with those exciting scenes. They're the same position and everything, but I mean, yeah. the details and the boxes were just incredible. But the models were so good, nobody complained. It was like comparing regular sex to Hollywood porn, you know? (laughs) It's not at all the same, and yet you still want the regular sex every chance you get, so you're not going (laughs) to complain that it's not really like it is on the box. Sure. I remember the first time I saw them, I instantly bought one of those models. I was probably six or eight years old, and I had to go to the dentist, which I hate, especially when they come at you with those three-inch long needles, you know? So then (laughs) my mom took me to the toy store in Quincy, Florida, And I was floored by the Phantom of the Opera box with Frightening Lightning, which is basically glow-in-the-dark alternate body parts of the head, the hands, and some poor... Oh, cool. Yeah, in this case, they had some a poor schmuck who is trapped in an underground prison cell at the feet of the Phantom, which is another thing that reminded me about this episode of the models, the prison theme. I love the models so much, I actually wanted to go to the dentist after that and get more models. So (laughs) maybe that's why I have more cavities. I was like, you know, I don't need to brush my teeth tonight. I want to finish my collection. My mom said my room turned into a chamber of horrors. Uh And when the lights went out, all these frightening lightning pieces would glow in the dark like tiny beady rat eyes, you know. (laughs) It actually scared one of our guests that was spending the night there when I went off to attend military school later on in high school and everything. So she threw them all out. What? Yeah, and I had to spend a lot of money, a lot more than the $2.50 each of those original models cost back in the day. Now, you know, they're they're rather expensive in comparison. But, you know, the fact of the matter is they made a bunch of them. In fact, Aurora sold... Seven million of them by 1964, and they still had another 10 years to go. Mm -hmm. They continued to making them long into the 1970s, 24 hours a day, 8,000 kits per day. Wow. And if you thought putting a prisoner in the Phantom's Dungeon was in questionable taste, you should have seen what they did in 1971. Mm. That's when they created monster scenes. It used Frankenstein, Dr. Deadly, and a scantily clad vampirella as well as a terrified victim in a halter skirt in these scenes they consisted of a pain parlor a hanging cage the pendulum blade and gruesome goodies that's right torture equipment on top of that the box slogan said rated x for excitement oh boy (laughs) well the pta and now went crazy when they saw these barely dressed women in torture equipment being marketed to kids They picketed Nabisco, which had just bought the model company. And in response, Nabisco fired nearly all the executive staff just two weeks before Christmas. Oh, boy. (laughs) That's X for (laughs) ex-executives. Now, those original models are rare and quite expensive. But what a glorious time it was to be a kid in the toy store and have such great monsters to spend your shekels on, despite the cost. I still wish I could buy them all now, but I just don't have the room. Yeah. So I guess you could say I'm a prisoner of space. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's funny. Oh, man, I remember those so well. And you were absolutely right. The box art was better than the model. You know, my problem was I could build the models fine. But I had a heck of a time painting them. Were you pretty good at painting the ones that you had? Because, you know, you had to put the face tones and the costume colors and things like that. Yeah. Mine never seemed to turn out quite, uh, certainly not as good as the box art, but, you know. Yeah, well, the problem was is that the paint that they sold you, it was all or nothing paint. 
Right. You know, there was no shades. We didn't have those little airbrushes or anything like that. So you put the slightest little mark on there and it was just like coloring and mm-hmm. belt tip pins. It was either all or nothing. Right. So, uh, you know, they always kind of look kind of crappy in the paint thing. But that's why the Frightening Lightning was kind of cool because you didn't have to paint the face. Yeah, you didn't have to paint uh, it. The face yeah. or the hands or, of course, it was always nice to add a little bit of blood on the fingers. <laughs> what did you tell to Martha Lee when you found out she threw away those models? That's what I don't oh. know. All my best stuff happened. I mean, I don't know how she did it. She got rid of my entire uniforms from a military academy, including the swords, which are now like $1,000 a piece. Oh, my gosh. You got to be kidding me. Yeah. The Sam Browns, everything. They can never be replaced. But I did run out and I did rebuy all those models. Not the same exact ones, I wish, yeah. uh, but somebody else's versions of them. So I have this little shrine of all 13 <laughs> of those monsters. But I just can't afford you know, yeah. the money or the space for the additional models I would love to have. Because they actually did another line of the monsters as well. Not all of them, but the real high-powered ones that were actually better. Yeah. They showed the, the creature of the Black Lagoon actually swimming through the the water and stuff like that. It was very, very creative and cool. They were great. But I just love that whole thing with how they just totally stepped in it. You know, and it was a golden age to be a kid, like you said, to have those. Because if you liked monster movies, and I did, obviously you did too, because they were based on the universal monsters, mm-hmm. those Frankenstein, Wolfman, and Dracula. And despite my bad painting, the models themselves were pretty detailed. Like even the Dracula, I remember they had a, like a dead tree and there were some like little miniature bats that came with it. And I love that too. I was like, I just like play with the bat and everything. It was great. Yeah. They even sold a separate box where they sold additional little things like iguanas and bats and rats <laughs> that you could add to it. And they had contests for people to, you know, try to set these things up into dioramas and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of these people did have these techniques with the uh, airbrushing and stuff like that. Yeah. And the, what they were able to do with these things is just phenomenal. And they still do it to this day. Not Aurora, but, you know, there's still people that compete with these things. And they're amazing. Go online and see them. I would not be surprised if there's not a Facebook group just devoted to these Aurora monster models. Oh, absolutely. It's a huge too. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, I appreciate you bringing that up. That's a nice walk down memory lane. Hmm. If they had done a series on Lost in Space monsters, this episode would have been the best episode to do it because they had all the monsters in it other than the Cyclops, but they already had a model for that. Right. You had all these different monsters in this rocky, fog infested area. It would have been perfect. It would have been perfect. Yeah. That's great. Well, before we finish, let's talk about the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. Some days later, Dr. Smith's midday rest is interrupted by a school field trip for Will and Penny, being led by their electronic educator, the robot. Dr. Smith grumbles at being passed over to teach the children, and then storms off in a huff to occupy his mind with more gainful pursuits. But the spurned would-be tutor walks only a few yards before stumbling across a large piece of apparently abandoned alien technology. Unable to resist fiddling with the mechanism's control buttons, Smith's actions soon cause the strange apparatus to power up. Uh Uh-oh. Two large psychedelic pinwheels flash and spin as a series of unusual female likenesses cycle across the machine's big-screen view monitor. Just then... The children and the robot arrive to witness Dr. Smith's experimentation with what he surmises is an instant galactic painting device. Hmm. But when Dr. Smith starts to push a button that he thinks will print the exotic girl's picture, the robot warns of danger. 
ignoring the gregarious gremlin's cautions, the cocky connoisseur of fine art plows ahead and flips one last switch, which instantly raises powerful bolts of cosmic energy, raining down on our fearful foursome. But just then, when things couldn't get any more out of control, a large transparent cylinder containing a life-sized 3D version of the silver-clad, humanoid-looking female materializes right in front of that wacky, computerized coloring book. What now? But before we can find out what happens next, the freeze frame slides in to remind us that this story is to be continued next week, same time, same channel. Kurt, I've heard of life imitating art before, but this takes the cake. I guess we're lucky Smith didn't try to print one of his abstract paintings. Can you imagine? Oh, so true. But think about it. An android machine that creates life-size fembots. This <laughs> could get kinky. Yeah, baby, yeah! <laughs> that's no lady, that's a man, man. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the way that it's like inside this cylinder. Right. It actually looks like a, a life-size blister pack. You know, like you get these action <laughs> figures in. That's, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Well, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing episode 36 of Lost in Space titled The Android Machine. Until then, take care and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.